Hello and welcome to the Builders Podcast, a show about entrepreneurs, artists, creators, developers, brands, and investors building the next generation of the internet, the Web3. If you're a builder or aspire to become one, you have come to the right place. In this episode, I caught up with my good friend, Trevor Owens, serial entrepreneur, product builder, and investor in more than 50 startups, mostly in Web3. He shares what it takes to be a great founder, what are some of the most common startup mistakes, and we also discuss the future of Bitcoin. Hope you enjoy it. Super excited to talk to you because obviously you have come a long way, you know, since we spoke about Web3 and blockchain a couple of years back. And you're actually one of those people that brought me in, in a sense, I would say. I, I have to give you that credit because, you know, I remember being exposed to crypto back in the days in China and I completely dismissed it. I was like, I don't understand anything, too many scams. I don't want to have anything to do with this. And then I saw you jumping full time into this space and basically starting the accelerator and doing a lot of different investments. And we're going to talk all about that, but I really wanted to give you the credit that you were one of those people that are very close to me in my circles that really kind of opened my eyes. And so thanks for that. It has been amazing so far to kind of learn about these new concepts and meeting all these people. And so today I would love to talk a little bit about what you're really, really good at because you work with so many of these founders and you mentor these founders. You have these accelerator programs that you run with Stacks. And, you know, in the past, you actually did many different other programs. And so I really want to go deeper into like what it really takes to be a good builder, good founder. And uh, what are some of the things that you really look for or even that you're trying to kind of encourage in those teams? And so before we get into that, can you just like give us a brief intro about what you're currently doing and what you did in the past and how you actually ended up in Web3. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my name is Trevor Owens. I'm the managing partner of Stacks Ventures and also the CEO of Ninja Alerts. Stacks Ventures is main sort of ecosystem venture fund in the Stacks blockchain, which is like a layer two on top of Bitcoin that allows Bitcoin to do all the things that Ethereum can do. And Ninja Alerts is a NFT trading tool for the Ethereum ecosystem. So, you know, I'm not a maximalist of any kind, you know, I'm really a technologist and yeah. an entrepreneur and pragmatist. And that's my, the lens I look at everything through. And I was very similar to you, Jan, when I was in, actually in China in the, in the last crypto bull run. And yeah, it was just a lot of kind of BS in the market and like companies like raising ridiculous amounts of money without having anything and really having yeah. unrealistic plans. And so I also stayed out of it and was turned off by that. I think also this wave was very, very different than the previous wave. For me, I really didn't get in until I saw what was happening with DeFi and NFTs. Mm -hmm. Like the, the Beeple sale for me was like the watershed moment, kind of like in the AI industry when Google DeepMind developed the AlphaGo product that like beat the world champion at Go. You know, I think it's very similar. Deep learning has always had a lot of promise, so has blockchain, but there was never a clear market application for it and sort of no, no turning point to where it was obvious that it was going to be, you know, reach the mainstream audience, sort of cross the chasm, if you will. Yeah. And so coming from a background of essentially like teaching lean startup, being a founder, being a developer, 
you know, I spent 10 years working with founders, sort of coaching them on how to go to market and reviewing a lot of the causes of startup failure. And, you know, I worked with people like Eric Reese, author of Lean Startup, and many other people far more successful and brilliant than myself to learn this space. And that's, you know, continually informed my approach and my view on things. And so that's why, you know, when I saw like all the unrealistic sort of things and, you know, I've been working with so many founders where I would see yes. things much less ludicrous always fail like 100% of the time. And so yeah. when you see these things, all these ICOs and stuff like that, it's like, I don't know how a person that has actually been a builder and like knows what it takes to be successful can justify some of those moves. I mean, I can understand just trying to raise as much money as you can. That's fine. But, you know, the technology is far too immature and it wasn't clear what the use case would be for blockchain that you couldn't do without the typical Web2 server format. And so it really took me until seeing these new use cases and then trying them out, understanding why they're different, that I went from being like a complete skeptic to being a complete believer. And so, you know, my decisions are always informed on looking at the evidence and being rational. Yeah. And for me, it was just very, very obvious in 2021 that the things that you could do at that point and the user adoption, you know, primarily on chains like Ethereum with, you know, MetaMask and seeing like that user adoption, that it was clear that this wave had reached a tipping point that would lead to massive value creation and sort of a paradigm shift in the tech and startup industry. Nice. Yeah. And we're going to talk about all those different chains and technologies because, you know, you're coming at this from the engineer point of view, right? You're a self-taught engineer. You have built products. You're still building products today yourself, not just investing. And so I want to ask you maybe a little bit later, a couple of questions on that. But first, you know, we spent some time together working on different projects in the past. And what I really always enjoyed about your approach is pushing founders to maybe do the uncomfortable, but yeah. things that really have to be done because otherwise, you know, the probability of success is very low or probability yeah. of failure is very high. How do you look for that? Like, you know, that special thing within a founder that you can tell like, Hey, this person maybe doesn't have all it takes today, but you know, I can coach him or her. What are some of those characteristics that define a great founder super early stage? Because that's what you do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's hard because at the core of my values, I believe in every single individual out there. I believe in unlimited human potential. And I believe that you don't have to start a unicorn. Like anybody can create something out of nothing. Now, of course, the best equivalent or analogy is like sports. It's like anybody can play basketball, right? But unless you're six foot plus, you know, you might have a hard yeah. chance getting into the NBA. You need both talent and work ethic and coaching and resources and everything to succeed. And so, you know, similar thing applies to the startup industry, you know, like the vast majority of successful founders are in their forties and have done multiple startups already. The sort of like 20 somethings that you see in the media are very much the exception. And there's a huge luck factor in that. And the media sort of swarms and focus on those individuals. Even if you look at, and actually some teams even like play the media in that way, nothing against like Vitalik, he is definitely a genius, but very few people realize that there's another co-founder named Joseph Lubin who probably had a much bigger impact on the success of Ethereum because he started Consensus, which developed MetaMask, Etherscan, and a lot of the core tech products. And I think, you know, it's, I'm not going to say that they had this plan, but, you know, a lot of the media focus is not proportionally on the impact that the two main founders mm -hmm. had. If we say Vitalik and Joe Lubin, two main founders, it's like 99% Vitalik and 1%, maybe even 0%. 
focus on Joe Lubin and some of the accomplishments mm. and contributions that he had. And he's, you know, he's a much older guy, you know, he's a seasoned business person and Ethereum wouldn't be where it is today without him. So there's sort of a cult around the sort of like youth in the entrepreneurship space, which True. once you sort of get into and understand, you realize that there's nothing really behind it. So when I look at founders, my approach is really trying to take as much risk off the table as possible and mm -hmm. try and make it as easy as possible to be successful. And so the motto of our fund is that we look for founders who can find an easy way to do something difficult. And this comes from my experience, both my personal experience, myself as a founder, and also working with hundreds of founders and teams where, you know, there's a certain type of person that gravitates towards starting a new business. You know, you tend to be very smart, very hardworking, but also overconfident. And maybe you have a chip on your shoulder. You maybe have some, you know, some founders tend to have more of insecurity in terms of like, they want to achieve something big. And that's because maybe there are areas of their life that were lacking either when they were growing up or, you know, going through school, they didn't have that like achievement or sort of like they have a, a strong drive, something internal driving them to be very ambitious. And so that can come from a sense of dissatisfaction or maybe a little bit of insecurity. And so a lot of people, you know, your business becomes a manifestation of your identity, right? And that can be very dangerous for founders because mm. people tend to fall in love with their ideas. And especially when you're getting started, like the media always like plays up these ideas because, you know, most journalists, they've never started a business. So they really don't have a high definition understanding of what it takes. But mm. like, it's kind of like the Disney version of building a business. You know, it's like very easy for people to understand. And so these sort of biases play into a lot of the weaknesses in psychology of how founders operate. And so, you know, what we look for is, and you actually see this with first and second time entrepreneurs, a big difference in terms of their mindset and psychology in terms of like second time entrepreneurs tend to be a lot less ego driven. They tend to be a lot more practical. They don't fall in love with their ideas as much. They're much happier to pivot. And so those are a lot of things that we look for. And like, it comes down to, and you know, a first time entrepreneur can have it just as much as a second time, but it tends to like improve, right? So the idea of like finding an easy way to do something difficult is like, what is the path that requires the minimum amount of time and effort in order to be successful? Like, mm -hmm. um, that means that our team is structured really well. Like typically the ideal team is like three co-founders, a really strong backend who is developing the core IP and technology and the competitive advantage of the technology, a really good front end engineer, because now front end is becoming a lot harder. And so you need someone who's mm -hmm. a good product person, can build a professional looking site, can make a responsive app, understands the difference between yes. mobile and web and all these different platforms. And then you need a business person who is the fundraiser and the marketer and operations and can like talk a good game, can like recruit people. And so if you have those three individuals and these are generally like T-shaped, so they're not specialists, they're a combination of a generalist and a specialist, but they're more heavy on the generalist side. So they can do a lot of different things really well. And then they can do a few things like better than anybody else. You can pretty much build anything or create a lot of value on very minimal budget, right? So the initial stage of a startup building the tech is very, very expensive. And yeah. so the more that you can just minimize that cost by having very little waste in terms of roles that are not needed, and having people with the right sweat equity in the game, you know, the equity and cap table of the business is allocated properly towards those functions, the higher your likelihood of being successful. And so we look a lot at the cap table, like how is the equity distribution given out and why? And what is that initial team structure? Like we tend to see, you see like a lot of birds of a feather flock together. So you'll see some teams where it's like two business co-founders and one backend co-founder. And that's 
not an ideal setup. You know, if the CEO had the guts to just restructure that team, have a hard conversation with their business co-founder, replace that person, you know, with a front-end person, they would just like have a much easier time being successful and competitive in the market. And because timing is so important, you know, especially in the crypto and Web3 space, you know. So, that, so Trevor, I will stop you there. Yeah. So how do you deal with this? So because you guys invest pretty early. So let's say you find this kind of team that maybe is not ideal, but you still feel that the market they're going after and maybe the ideas they have are great. And you would like to see them go after it, execute on that. So do you actually guide them through these changes? Do you encourage these changes? Do you have a conversation with them and say like, hey, I would recommend you to change this thing or to think about this. Do you have these kinds of conversations or is it something that you would probably just rather not do and and move to the other team because it's easier, you know, in a sense. Absolutely. Like any problem we see, any pimple, any scar, anything we're going to bring up and make sure the founder's aware of it. Now, okay. depending on the situation, we may bring it up in a different way, right? So, you know, generally our approach is that we have a certain quota of companies we're trying to invest in in a certain pace at which we're trying to deploy capital. And so at some end, you have to look at all the different trade-offs and sort of just make the best bets you can with what the deal flow that you have. And so that informs it a lot, but, you know, if there's a company where holistically, like, you know, it's never any like one thing that's wrong. It's always a combination of factors. And yeah. so when we invest, like the way we look at it is like, we can help you fix one thing. Like if you join the accelerator, okay. if you work with us, we can help you fix one thing. Like we can help you fix two things. Like, you know, like yeah. small things, sure, but like one big thing. And then you need to be pretty quickly to raise funding. And so that's sort of the minimum criteria where we just like, there's too many things going on. We won't invest. We have made conditional offers like where there was a lot of challenges that tended not to work out for us well. So we're not really going to do that probably going forward. We have tried a lot of experiments and learned from those. Yeah. And so with those founders where let's say they're the wrong team structure, but it's like pretty close, you know, we'll probably discuss it with them, but we'll like, we'll work on this together. You know what I'm saying? And we'll sort of repeat it over time for other teams where they have more things going on. We're just going to be straight up front with them and be like, listen, here are the problems that we see and why this is not like a slam dunk for us. And we'd love for you to like work on fixing those things and come back to us. We will never have a situation where mm -hmm. we don't like give that direct feedback or we just sort of like say everything is great and then like don't invest. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like we try to be as upfront yeah. as possible, which I think is a very long-term strategy. You know, short-term, yes. it probably hurts us because we have to like sort of say like uncomfortable things and we try to be very delicate about it and not try to come off as mean because I would prefer myself as a founder for someone just to tell me straight up. And I think those found yes. some founders will be very sensitive and like will not take criticism well, but that's also a sign of someone who is not mature enough to be able to build a successful business. And so. Exactly. Um, yeah. No, exactly. That's how I look at it because I think it goes back to what I mentioned at the very beginning. You know, I know when we used to work together, I know that you were in a different accelerator. It's always about doing the hard things first and really get yep. comfortable with that. You know, it's still in my mind, like get out of the building, right? And talk to your customers. Yeah. And I feel like it's, and I would love to hear your opinion right now because you have been in, in Web3 for a couple of years now. So do the same rules apply in Web3 as well? When it comes to lean startup, building this minimum viable product, talking to your customers, getting feedback, pivoting, does it work exactly the same way? Would you say that there are certain differences or, you know, like, how do you perceive it? How do you look at this in Web3? 
Yeah. You know, it's so funny because, like, I always get asked that question. When we were in China, for example, I got asked the same question, like, over and over again. Like, well, does this work in China? And, like, what about Chinese culture and, like, stuff yes. like this? And, I, and like, yes. there are more, like, an entrepreneur in China, an entrepreneur in the U.S. will be more similar than, you know, an entrepreneur in the U.S. and an investment banker in the U.S. Like, the okay. cultural aspect yes. is very minimal. You know, I, I used to say that culture is the shrimp on the pizza. So if you're in China, you know, they have pizza. It's still very popular. There's just shrimp on it. And so it's really like the icing on the cake. It's like a small aspect of the psychology. But yeah, like it's almost identical. Like it's extremely, extremely important. And I think it's even more important in Web3 because you have a little bit of more people who where in Web3, you've seen like a lot more things that are detached from reality than you see in Web2. So you'll see like much more examples of like flukes and like things that like sort of defy gravity happening in Web3, like although that's like temporary, you know what I'm saying? Like Terra, Terra Luna, for example, you'll see a lot more of those things. And I think people notice them. And so you end up having to need it even more to take people back down to the ground floor and reality so that they can focus on fundamentals and be successful. Makes total sense. And so really simple question to this, right? Because I think it's really, really important. So how do you teach this? Like, let's say you have somebody who comes to your accelerator, you think that they're great on paper, but maybe they're lacking these practical skills when it comes to building a business, when it comes to really looking at the industry, what do I need to do? What is the minimum viable product that I need to create, build, and go to the market? Do you have any specific tips that you put in place? Yeah, I mean, that's something That's something that we can teach you the tools and the skills, but if you don't have the mindset for it, it's like a kind of a deal breaker. So if I can know from the jump that you don't have that mindset, like it's going to be like, come back to me in a year or like when you've kind of developed that mindset. And so definitely like the Lean Start Machine Bootcamp that we used to do is really helpful at that. We now have a pre-accelerator program in Stacks that we work with run by Albert, yeah. who is a longtime collaborative of mine in Shanghai, who I worked with, you know, doing these training programs for many years. And so I think that's probably the best approach is like we send them to the pre-accelerator and then, you know, it's up to Albert to decide if he thinks he can help them to pick up that mindset. But really like without that sort of like rationality mindset, like you're just done for Like the whole thing about finding an easy way to do something difficult is like having intellectual flexibility and strategic flexibility to pivot. And so if you're not able to adapt, you're going to die. Like you have to be able to adapt. That's the most important factor mm. of a founder. And then determination, hard work comes second. There's so many people who are super determined and hardworking who just drive themselves off a cliff. And, you know, without that adaptability, you have no GPS, you have no steering wheel. And so we, you have to have both or it's not going to work. I really want to go deeper on this because in startups, when it comes to like, what is the right time to stop, right? Because it's true that there is many people and especially even the people that I have around me or even myself, I remember that building different projects and companies. Sometimes you would just be blind. You're just too stubborn because like you just, you love your idea. It's your baby, right? Like it's something that you put so much effort into and Many people will tell you, oh, maybe this is not going to work. Maybe this person is not the right person. Maybe this team is not the right team, the right setup. But you're like, shit, I'm just going to do it because, you know, I see something behind this. And so from your experience, kind of what are some of those indicators 
or what are some of those things or the ways how you can guide these people to discover these things themselves? Because I feel like if you just tell them, it's never going to work, right? It's the same with like parents and kids, right? You just don't listen. You just do your thing. But if you can be taught, hey, you discovered yourself, kind of like you have that idea by yourself that like, I need to pivot. I need to change something up. How do you do this? Do you have any, any specific strategy? So hard, man. I mean, I couldn't tell you, I couldn't do it until I actually experienced it myself with my previous companies. And, mm. you know, it may be something that just like, I'm personally the type of person who sometimes I need to learn the hard way, you know, but once I learn it, it's like my productivity and my ability sort of like goes up an exponential amount, but it's really, really hard. Like there's plenty of people who give up too early, you know what I'm saying? And so I would rather be the person who gives up too late, at least in the beginning, and then learn the hard way and then know when to give up as opposed to being the person who always gives up too early. And then like, you'll probably never be successful. It's a personal decision. I mean, for me, like the critical thing, when I talk to my portfolio companies, it comes down to like, how much do you need to rebuild? You know what I'm saying? I think losing momentum is probably one of the biggest signs. Obviously running out of money is another really big sign that you should call it a day because there's something so beautiful about starting over that I think is not emphasized enough. Like once you've gone through it and you've kind of failed, like it's way easier to start over. So, you know, when I look at our portfolio mm. companies and we've already had companies who have like, you know, from our first cohort or second cohort, even by the end of the program where I'm like, Hey, like you should probably start over, you know what I'm saying? And like, it really comes down to a conversation, understanding like a temperature check, how do they feel? And, you know, how much more difficult is it gonna to be to keep going on the same path versus how easy will it be to start over? And like, is there anything redeemable about what you currently have? And do you have the momentum? What is the current market condition? So I kind of look holistically at all these things. And I'm someone who always advises founders that like, there's no shame and starting over, in fact, the complete opposite happened to me where, you know, sort of persisting longer than anyone else actually pissed people off. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> you're, some, a lot of times your investors would rather just like have you start over and like invest in your next thing rather than have you continue on a path that's not viable just because you want to prove yourself and you have a chip on your shoulder or they'd be happier if you just threw in the towel than if you like kept getting punched in the face. And so. My previous businesses, like I just kept getting punched in the face and just like, look how tough I am. I can keep taking it. But actually people were like, you know, kind of pissed off that I kept doing that. Yes. I like the answer at the beginning. You mentioned that basically it's better to go through the pain, but actually learn that you made a mistake and not do it again, rather than give up too early too many times, because probably like you're going to get tired eventually even faster, right? Because like you didn't really build anything. You're just giving up, starting new things, but it doesn't go anywhere. But if you persist for a little longer with a project, even though it's difficult, you learn so many different things. And like, then you know what to avoid next time when you start over. So I really like that one. And also like, I look at things very practically, right? I think it also all depends on like, you know, the people's situation, personal situation, you know, like, can they actually afford to start over? right? Can they actually afford to go and maybe just live frugal life for like five years before they figure it out, right? I think this is also like a huge factor, probably is like impossible to really remove from the equation completely, right? So like you need to be looking at things very practically and like kind of setting yourself 
up for the success or that you are in that position that you can actually afford to keep pushing, even though, you know, maybe it's going to take another two years and you need to make a bunch of pivots and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of like moving on, I would love for you to unpack a little bit. You have experience in web two building different products. Now you moved into web three and you work with a lot of these founders. So what does it take to really build a Web3 company today from zero to get to the level, maybe not to a ICO or like not to some huge amount of success and this, but actually having a viable business? What does it really take beyond the team set up and all of those things that we already discussed, but really the technology level, the understanding, the markets, et cetera, the planning, what else does it take? I mean, I think like, the challenge is there's more variables. There's more things to deal with. Mm. You know, there's a whole new class of technology you have to learn. But I think if you're building in Web2 right now and you were to actually get started in building in Web3, you'd be like shocked how easy it is and how much lack of competition there is in the market and how much demand there is for solutions that don't exist. The biggest reason that I wanted to work in Stacks instead of in Ethereum, especially for my investing and like the majority of my allocation is there, is because there's just so much more blue ocean. And like, in my opinion, there's guaranteed to be a layer two on Bitcoin that will compete with Ethereum. And Stacks just has like the best team, technology, community ecosystem actually doing that. And it's much earlier. So there's more upside and growth opportunity. And so, you know, from an intellectual standpoint, like the best talent wants to work in this industry. From a market mm -hmm. standpoint, there's so many things that don't exist that you could build. And so the sort of the additional work, you would just be surprised how, you know, because there's less of a competition, people are willing to accept a lower quality in terms of execution. Mm. Like a lot of the web three apps that are successful, people are like the UX sucks and this looks like so amateur. And there's like a lot of amateur products that are successful. And that is a good thing because that tells you like how easy this game is to play. And so, yeah. You know, when you see that as a problem, really it's an opportunity for you as a builder to get into this space and to have an impact. So the challenge is probably just getting over the hurdle of understanding how it works and understanding what it's all about. It is a big mindset shift. And like, as somebody who worked in like Web2 for like 10 years and has heard every single startup idea, like at least 10 times, because I ran all of these lean startup machine workshops where people yes. would pitch business ideas every single weekend. And I heard every single idea 10 times. And the, the landscape is completely different in web three. Like it's the first time in many, many years that I'm hearing new ideas that I'm actually seeing new behaviors from end users that I never would have thought possible in the web two space. So I think just wrapping your head around those new user behaviors and how the fundamentals change things in web three is probably the biggest challenge, but it's also probably the most fun. So I think if you're considering getting into it, like I couldn't recommend it more. How much effort and time would you say that it really takes, you know, to get over that hurdle? So obviously you probably need to learn the jargon. You need to learn how to use these different tools and MetaMask here and this wallet there and Stacks is different to Ethereum because of this and that. So you need to learn these things, but probably that's just going to take some time, a little bit of research. You're going to follow a couple of people. You're going to listen to a couple of interviews and you'll probably kind of grasp it relatively quickly. 
But what else? What else do you need to do, especially if you are an engineer or if you are, you know, even like a business person that is getting from Web 2 to Web 3? Like, what would you say is really required? How much time is required? There's different levels, right? So, like, if you're a good programmer, like, just learning how to do smart contracts is not a heavy lift. Mm. It's probably just, like, you know, two weeks. Like, when we started Ninja Alerts, my CTO picked up Solidity in two weeks and then wrote the smart contract in another week and then we're off to the races. So not very much it. time if you're not much time if you're a good that's developer. It. I mean, the harder thing is understanding the subset of the universe of things that work and are possible. And so, you know, that's sort of like understanding what an anti-pattern is and what a negative pattern and a positive pattern in terms of like things that will work and things that are practical and viable. I think it probably takes about a year, you know? So for me, okay. like, and that's like just based on my personal, you know, experience. So I think like, I started getting into the space like April of last year. And I think by now, like I have a very, very good understanding of what's going to work and what's not. And I can even like sort of take some of the, the ideas a step further and like even hone them into make them better ideas or more clear in terms of ways to think about it. But like the first year, I'm just like, I have no idea what's going to work. I'm going to listen to as many people as possible. I'm going to hear every idea. I'm going to not rule almost anything out unless it's like obviously a bad idea or, you know, I would usually get other people's opinions on things. So I'd, you know, have my friends or my colleagues where I'd be like, what do you think about this? If four or five people are like, it's a bad idea, then I'm like, okay, well, it sounds like it's a bad idea, you know? So similar experience also teaching and learning lean startup. When I first started doing the training programs, like I didn't do any teaching or comment on anything probably for the first like year and a half or so. Yeah. And then I started to form opinions on things. So I think, you know, just learning the tech is like, pretty easy. It's just another coding language and the tech is pretty interesting. And you kind of have those initial paradigm shifts, I think pretty quickly, like in the first month. So I had a lot of paradigm shifts in the first month or two, and then really wrapping your head around what's going to work, what's not, I think about a year. I just realized that at the beginning of this conversation, I said, you have been in crypto for a couple of years, but it has not oh. even been two years. No. <laughs> I just yeah. feel like, man, time flies so quickly. And me, myself, like I have been watching the space for maybe a year now, basically, you know? Oh my God. I just realized you just said like last April and I kind of already feel like you have been in the space for a couple of years because it's just so crazy. There's just like one thing. And I really enjoy it because I like the speed. I like the hunger. I like the things are moving really quickly. You need to be always talking to people. You always need to be learning. I, I really like it because it really pushes you to do much more and learn more and really utilize your potential. So I really like it, you know, so you are the second person actually that I've been recently speaking with. And they told me that learning blockchain development is actually not that difficult. And I'm really surprised by that because like, obviously I'm not an engineer, so I cannot really assess those things in detail, but it's actually very surprising because like we are hearing all of these hacks and scams and things that are going on in the space. Basically, I feel like, you know, or maybe give me your answer to this. Like, how much do you need to really pay attention to the security aspect? So like you basically learn that blockchain programming or the solidity programming, and you can write a smart contract, but I, I feel like it doesn't stop there, right? Like you really need to figure out how to audit it properly, make sure that everything is working properly, that if somebody mints your NFT on your platform, like they're not gonna get their wallet wiped out and stuff like that. So like, can you talk a little bit about this? Like the different level 
what else do you need to keep in mind beyond just learning the language and actually building things? What else is there? Here's maybe an analogy I just thought of, which is like building on blockchain is like, imagine you want to write like a thank you note to like someone that means a lot to you, you know, like really important. And all you have is a pen and one piece of paper, right? And so if you write the wrong word, like you're going to have to cross it out and it's going to like ruin the whole thing, right? So whereas if you had a lot of paper and a pencil, like that's more like web two. Like you have so many opportunities to correct your mistakes. You can react so quickly. But like with blockchain, like when you're writing these smart contracts, it's etched in stone. There's no mm. going back. Once it's live, like you can't change it. And so you have to have everything audited. A big thing is that like, even you have a small problem, it could become a big problem for you because mm. it's a very competitive market and not everyone has the right intentions and people will exploit that to take you down. You know what I'm saying? And maybe yeah. they're your competitor or maybe they're just someone trying to engagement farm on Twitter. You know what I'm saying? But you're going to be the tool that they use to capitalize mm. on whatever their goal is, you know, even you have a small mistake. And so auditing even for something that's low risk is absolutely important. It can hurt your credibility if nothing else. And so yeah. we require all of our founders to have a security audit. Of course, there's various levels depending on the risk of the contract or the length of the contract. And so, yeah, like that's a huge change. That's really important. And one of the biggest problems with Solidity specifically, which is the EVM theory environment, which Stacks had kind of the foresight and brilliance to fix is that all of the smart contracts are compiled on the blockchain. They did it mainly to save space and to make it like more performant. But the trade-off is that these bugs are so much harder to identify and mm. people can also hack your contract with another contract and hide their method. You know what I'm saying? So with Stacks, all of the smart contracts are interpreted. So the difference between compiled and interpreted is that when the code is compiled, what you actually have on the blockchain is like ones and zeros. You know what I'm saying? It's like you take the source code that they wrote and then you compile it and then you push onto the blockchain a bunch of like ones and zeros and machine language, right? Byte code. When it's interpreted, you're actually just putting the source code on the chain. And so with EVM, you, of course, you can upload your source code, but it's not required. And there was a study, and this is an, an old study, so hopefully it's improved, but like something like 90%, I mean, I have to find the number. 90% of smart contracts don't have source code. So with Stacks, it's all interpreted. So you have to have all the source code. To just interrupt. So when you say that you don't have a source code, that means that like if you actually, let's say you're an independent third party, you want to go audit, you want to go understand, you cannot find any information, which means you're not going to be able to understand. Is that correct? Yeah, if you're an independent third party. Yeah, I mean, so yeah. you can decompile the smart contracts on EVM, but it's kind of unreliable and, you know, it's not like a, great solution and there's sort of like a lot of other problems with like decompiling it you're actually trusting a centralized party to decompile it on your mm. behalf and mm. so with the interpreted language like clarity on stacks you know you put a smart contract up there and like you're almost guaranteed to have like a bunch of the independent just like open source devs like they're all going to read your contract like you know they're all going to look for bugs and they'll probably you know message you and inform you about like any problems that they see with it. I've seen that happen multiple times within the Stacks community. Another benefit is there was one of our portfolio companies, they were actually hacked. And so, you know, they had mm. an audit, top tech team, you could still make mistakes and things can still go bad, right? They were hacked for like a million bucks. But the thing was, 
they were able to read the smart contract of the hacker's contract. So they just read how the hacker hacked them and they reverse engineered it and they hacked back 90% of the funds from the hacker by just like using the same method. You know, something like Axie Infinity, actually, I mean, Axie Infinity was different. It was like more like social engineering, but, you know, they did lose like $600 million. And so, you know, something like that, like you're dead. You know what I'm saying? Like there's no coming back if that happens to you. And there's a whole industry of people who this is how they make money. You know what I'm saying? I mean, North Korea actually who hacked Axie Infinity. So North Korea is out there trying to hack you too. If you're successful, like you're going to have their hacker group coming for you. So you can't be careful enough. So my question to this is like, what is the solution? And I'm probably thinking about two directions and you tell me if we're going to probably go after both of them or if maybe only one of them is viable. So obviously one solution that comes to my mind is like different layers, right? Different protocols, like you're going to build something better, something that is innovating on the top of the things that don't work. So for instance, you mentioned that you guys have a different language at Stacks. And so that's one way to potentially solve these problems, to innovate and to make it more secure, right? But what about these ecosystems where there is already 200 billion, 300 billion of value built on the top of them, let's say like Ethereum. Obviously, I think it's pretty hard to claim that it's going to go away, right? Because people are used to it. There is a lot of value locked in that ecosystem. And so they probably have to innovate from within, right? To maybe solve some of these issues. So what are some of the things that they can do? Or what do you envision that this industry is going to become in terms of solving these underlying issues in terms of security, in terms of these audits and things that we don't really see these hacks happening anymore or at least much less? Yeah, so there's definitely some positive progress in the EVM space. From a technical perspective, like, or a theoretical perspective, really anything can be changed on blockchain. It just requires a hard fork or a soft fork. And there's various levels of difficulty. I mean, we've just seen Ethereum switch from proof of work to proof of stake, which is a insane, people call it an open heart surgery or, you know, fixing the plane engine while it's in flight. And so that can tell you that like really anything can be fixed. But the question is, what is the ROI on that? And is it like obvious and a lot of other factors? The fact that everything is compiled on the blockchain, I think is a clear mistake. You know what I'm saying? I think that it's far superior not to do that. People can disagree with that. I mean, there's certain advantages, but I think that the trade-offs are better for interpreted languages. And then sort of the lack of decidability of Ethereum smart contracts. So with EVM, it's Turing complete, which means that you can have a loop that goes on forever. So you could submit a smart contract that like never finishes. Like imagine I have a smart contract that says, send one Ethereum and then count from zero to infinity. Like that loop would go on forever because you can never reach infinity, right? So what happens is when you submit a gas payment, the gas payment actually acts as like a halting mechanism to tell the smart contract to terminate. But there's mm. still a lot of issues that lead to a poor user experience because can't really know, you know, what a smart contract is going to do. Whereas with Stacks, there's no looping. They took that out. And so, you know, for a fact, every function is going to stop, right? And so that allows also the wallet, like the hero wallet, to tell you exactly what's going to happen. Like there's so many hacks in Ethereum where there's various kinds of hacks, right? But there's hacks where you just like 
you're just signing the byte code gibberish and like there's some pictures of these i've tweeted but like your malt pops up you have no clue what this is going to do you're literally just yes. completely trusting the developer yes. and the website yes you know like if you've been to nfts for more than a day you never want to connect your wallet to a website that you don't know because it's mostly just going to take all your assets right now yes that can also happen in stacks but the difference is stacks will tell you if it's going to happen like it'll tell you hey, like, this is going to happen. This contract is going to do like, this. Let's say if you sign this contract, it's going to transfer all of your NFTs to this address. Right. Yeah. And I think we had this conversation on Twitter. I actually asked you about it in the past. Like, you know, can Ethereum do something similar? Probably they cannot do it to the level as stacks that it's basically like in the code or that's how the code is basically developed to serve that purpose. But... Can they add additional layer of, let's say, UI or something that basically, okay, like you will have the same message or you will have the same outcome. And this way they can actually increase the security. They can definitely do things to improve it. Now, can they get it to be at the level it stacks? Like not without a serious mm. fork, hard fork, soft fork, et cetera. It's more like a sort of manual approach as opposed to like a abstraction layer that like just takes care of it i can see like you know it's the difference between like how humans learn and how like a machine learns if you see like five pictures of like a horse you can identify like every single horse that you're ever going to see for the rest of your life unless it like kind of sort of looks like you know a hybrid of something right versus a machine like a computer vision algorithm i mean deep learning is actually you know solving this but like that's very difficult if it sees like just a little bit difference in what the horse looks like it's going to say it's not a horse Right. So you can kind of account for specific vulnerabilities and specific hacks and things like that, mm. like piecemeal. But there's no sort of carpet bomb, like get rid of all of it. You know, like if you have a, a bug problem with your house, you know, you can't just have the pest control come in and bomb the whole place and get rid of all of them. You kind of just have to like keep smacking a fly, you know, every time it comes out of somewhere. Yeah. That's kind of like the approach. You could get to like a 20-80 ratio of like 20% of the fixes solve 80% of the problems, but there's always going to be a moving goalpost. There's always going to be new hackers come up with a new way to get it. And so one of the really promising things I'm seeing in the EVM space is that there's a new language that's an alternative to Solidity that still compiles down to the same bytecode that is that only allows you to code decidable functions. So like initiatives like that are really cool where it just like limits what code you can write but it's still mm. like the actual blockchain still has the ability to do these loops, but just like in that coding language, you can't sort of like mess it up. I think it's called Viper. Interesting. So that's really promising. They are pushing it, but you know, it's like still very few people okay. know about it. There's definitely things that can be improved, but like the kind of the core of it, like I think that, you know, being decidable at the core level, being interpreted, having what Stacks calls post conditions where a transaction will fail if like something doesn't happen. So like a contract tries to do something that it didn't say it was going to do, like the transaction will automatically fail. Nice. So things like that, I think, are just much better solutions. And, you know, implementing those on EVM would be, it's not easy to do. Makes sense. Man, well, last question. I know that we're running out of time, but I definitely want to cover this topic because we have been touching on Stacks and what you guys are doing over there. So. Could you, you know, just kind of using your way and your view, because I know that you're pretty vocal on Twitter about these things. What is the current state of Bitcoin ecosystem? And what is your vision for Bitcoin? Because we have many of these different people or different ideological ideas, you know, like Bitcoin maximalism and like people hate one another. 
So what is the state of Bitcoin ecosystem today and where do you think it's headed and what's probably going to happen in like next five years? Yeah. So, I mean, the thing that I think honestly is going to happen, and I've like, kind of told this story and tweeted this story a few times, I think that we'll see in the next few years, like probably Ethereum is going to flip Bitcoin, right? So I think that mm. the, the use cases of smart contracts in terms of like all of the potential use cases and value to users and the market sizes of the different industries that they can account for will be much bigger than Bitcoin. Now, I think once that happens, it's going to be a huge time of reckoning for the Bitcoin mm. ecosystem because most of the maxis and like, there's already been a huge shift, I think, just in the last year where you're yeah. seeing so many more yeah. people and, you know, smart people like Nick Carter, Eric Voorhees, Eric Wall, UD Wertheimer, like these guys are kind of leading the cultural shift in the Bitcoin ecosystem. There is a challenge because a lot of people just kind of give up, you know, like a lot of the smart devs have already left like Bitcoin or they're like just tired of like some of the, the dogma and things like that. So I think mm -hmm. the cultural shift is going to happen if ETH flips Bitcoin. There's going to be sort of a reckoning where there's going to be all these people are going to realize that like Bitcoin needs to have a layer twos that can compete with Ethereum. And competition is a good thing. You know what I'm saying? I'm not someone who's yeah. like, yeah. Ethereum should die. Solana should die. We only need one. There's only one true way. There's only one true truth. You know what I'm saying? Like probably there is one true truth, but we're not nearly smart enough and we won't be smart enough in thousands of years to actually know what that is. So it's much better to have competition and let the market decide and let a million flowers blossom. And so I think that with layer twos like Stacks and Lightning, seeing more developers after this sort of flipping, that I think that Bitcoin have the chance to flip Ethereum back, you know, because the, one of the big benefits of Stacks is that because of the connection to Bitcoin, you know, it's not just purely benefiting Stacks. A lot of people's coin maxis, they don't really understand it because they see it has a token and I think it's a negative when it's a really a core strength. And if like it didn't have that, I probably wouldn't even believe in the ecosystem, but it allows a lot of value to be created, accrued back to Bitcoin because Bitcoin is a settlement layer. So stacks cannot survive without Bitcoin and like all the transactions settled down to that. And so it's sort of like, you know, a startup inside of a big company, you know what I'm saying? It's like hmm. that, that big company is still going to benefit, but the startup's going to grow a lot. Stacks is going to grow. And this is not a price prediction or financial advice, but you know, <laughs> it's going yeah, to grow, you know, about that. in order of magnitude, if it starts eating the market share of Ethereum, and then a lot of that value is going to accrue back to Bitcoin. And maybe there'll be, you know, Ethereum has multiple layer twos. They have Polygon, Optimism, Arbitrum, Immutable, X. And so I think the same thing will happen with Bitcoin. There'll be a lot of different layer twos. And sort of Bitcoin will probably benefit disproportionately because of all the competition of people building on top of it. And so we need to let that thing happen. You know, we need to start focusing on building on Bitcoin because we want to avoid a situation where there is like only one winner. You know what I'm saying? As a yeah. ecosystem, like we want to have even more players than we have in the U.S. Like in the U.S., we have like Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon. You know what I'm saying? That's like a yes. pretty big concentration of power. And like we're probably trending yes. towards that in the blockchain ecosystem but it would be even worse just to have like one company you know what i'm saying that's sort of like dominating everything and so totally there's serious benefits to proof of work there's serious benefits to bitcoin's decentralization and lack of change you know and sort of slow progression that it's a really really solid place to build on top of and you know i think that if bitcoin were to succeed if like let's say they missed this boat and like you know, Ethereum flips Bitcoin, then a Bitcoin just sort of like, you know, shrivels up and sort of 
doesn't continue to innovate through the layer twos, I think it would be a huge loss to the world, to society, and to our future. And so I really hope that it doesn't happen. And I want to see Bitcoin continue to drive progress in the space. I'm not so deep in that ecosystem, but, you know, just kind of using common sense here, I think right now, if you look at Bitcoin maximalism, right, it's all about store of value. So many people just say like Bitcoin is this digital gold, right? And I totally buy that argument, right? But if you only focus on that, then you have a limited, I would say, kind of limited value that can be accrued by that asset, right? But like, if let's say what you mentioned, like if you have smart contracts, if you can do all of these applications, then, you know, yeah, probably Bitcoin can really become the next kind of currency or money, right? Like that people use for many different things, not just like buying a pizza, but like, you know, they can do so much more with that. If you can build applications on the top of that, that are somehow connected to Bitcoin to leverage that security and to leverage that entire ecosystem, right? Last comment from your side. So when do you think this is going to happen? Obviously, nobody really knows, but do you think that like, this is something that is going to happen relatively quickly, relatively soon, next bull market, for instance, or is it something that can potentially take much longer in terms of this flippening and kind of like people waking up to this idea that like, hey, this is actually beneficial for everyone? Obviously, the market is super uncertain right now, just in general, you know, with the macro yeah. environment. Yeah. And so my guess is within the next like five years, it could be a lot sooner. I see like every application that we have today in terms of like every tech application having some aspect of blockchain technology, it's never going to like, I think this is the thing that people maybe don't understand about blockchain who are looking at the outside. Like blockchain is good as, at a very specific few things. And it, mm -hmm. it's part of the tech stack, but it doesn't replace the existing tech stack. It just adds to it. And so, yes. you know, there's sort of ways that every application today can be improved by this technology. And like you were saying with Bitcoin, the more use cases that we have for Bitcoin, the more the adoption is going to grow. You know what I'm saying? And so there's a, there's a situation. And actually, like what we're seeing with NFTs in this last bull run is a lot of people are going right to Ethereum. Like for the first time, like for the longest time, it's really like Bitcoin is the starting point. And then people go over to Ethereum and others. And I think that's still the majority. But we've never seen until this like bull run where people are just skipping Bitcoin altogether and going to Ethereum and other chains first. And so I think especially with like the applications that we're seeing in the gaming space, there's still only, you know, hundreds of millions of crypto users right now, right? And so maybe yeah. it's 200 million Bitcoin wallets, which is like, you can't pair one wallet to one user because it exactly. has like multiple wallets. So the number is actually much smaller, yes. but there's like billions yes. of gamers, right? And so, yes, you know, those people are going to just leapfrog right into the next crypto blockchain. And so if Bitcoin is not capturing those users and it's no longer sort of the gateway, then it's definitely an existential risk to Bitcoin's potential to be a global accepted currency and separate money from the state, right? So like, I think of Bitcoin, the goal is to separate money from the state to be sort of like a global currency. And I see Ethereum as like separating data and Web3 as like separating data from corporations, centralizing that sort of like corporate governance. And so those are two different use cases, but I think Bitcoin needs to be able to do both in order to succeed in its battle because it's a much harder, it's much harder to go up against governments than it is to go up against corporations. They're both super strong and hard to beat, but like governments are way harder to beat. And so Bitcoin needs both in this fight to win. And that would be really, from my point of view, 
probably the highest attainment that we could reach in our lifetimes to see that happen. And so that's why I'm super bullish on it and why I want to see it happen. Makes so much sense, man. I think what you just mentioned kind of reminds me of like, if we're supposed to build an entire economy on Bitcoin, right? You need so many different use cases. It cannot be just digital gold, right? Because nobody really runs an economy today trading gold, right? Like gold is basically just like store of value, right? right. Hedge against inflation, whatever you name it. But if you actually want to run an economy using Bitcoin as the currency, you need to have so many different applications. It needs to move between people, between businesses quickly. And that's the only way, right? Otherwise, it's just not really viable idea when you think about it. Yeah. And, you know, convenience is a huge factor, right? Like, yeah. why does everyone give all of their data to Mark Zuckerberg, right? Like, people <laughs> know he's stealing your data. They know they don't like him. Nobody likes this guy. <laughs> but they keep using Facebook and Instagram because it's convenient and it's sort of like boiling the frog, right? And so Bitcoin can be intellectually the perfect solution, but unless people form a habit around it, it's convenient to use, it won't get that adoption. And, you know, at some point, like humans are very basic, right? So very you, true. Could, you could see people storing more value in Ethereum, even though it's not as good of an asset for that store of value, just because it's more convenient. And so that's a big reason, like you said, for these use cases to be built on top of Bitcoin and to give people an alternative to what's on Ethereum. Awesome, man. Trevor, I know you got to run. Thank you so much for your time. This has been great. I really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, I hope to catch up in person somewhere around the world. I, I actually don't know when it's going to happen, but uh, hopefully soon. Awesome, man. Yeah, great to see you, brother. And thanks for the time. The great interview. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Builders Podcast. If you enjoyed it, consider subscribing and leaving a five-star review. And most importantly, always do your own research. Until next time.